Isaiah is full of prophecy about Jesus. Some have called it the fifth gospel because Jesus is in Isaiah so much. Written 700 years before uh, Jesus came on the scene. Now, one of the best ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament is what's called predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. That's what is going on in Isaiah 7. That's what's going on in Isaiah 9. That's what's going on when we get to the suffering servant uh, into the 40s and 50s of Isaiah. There's 66 chapters. It's a very long book. Uh, we probably will never preach through the whole thing because it would take 10 years. But we can go into little sections of it. And what we're looking at today is the prophecy about Jesus coming and who he will be in his character, what he will be like specifically. All right. So Isaiah prophesying about the future says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now, the readers of Isaiah in no way could have known that this was a prophecy about Jesus. Let's just throw that out there. What we need is special revelation for us to understand the God who gave the prophecy also is the one who unlocks the prophecy that we might understand it. And so who unlocks it for us? Well, Matthew does. The Holy Spirit, through the writer of the gospel of Matthew, shows us this was actually about Jesus. So let's look at that. In Matthew 4, 12 to 17, this is just after Jesus has been tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. He has uh, been fasting and he resisted the devil to making him flee. And now he is full of the Holy Spirit and he is coming in power. That's that's the the scene as we break into Matthew chapter 4. Now, by this time, John the Baptist, his cousin, who was the forerunner, who was the pointer in John's own words, quoting Isaiah, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John has been arrested by Herod, and he is now uh, awaiting being beheaded. Okay? And so when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. I want to pause there for a second. Uh, Capernaum was where Peter and Andrew lived. Peter was the lead of the apostles, Andrew, his brother. And some think that perhaps Jesus even lived there with Peter in his house. It's very possible. And so Jesus goes from Galilee, Nazareth, which is in Galilee, kind of like Wilkinsburg is in Pittsburgh. Uh, So Nazareth is this large place And I'm sorry, Galilee is this large place. Nazareth is this small place where Jesus is from, but he moves and he moves into Capernaum. And so leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now you're starting to think of Isaiah. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is how we know that Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 was about Jesus because he quotes it here and says it was. The land of Zebulun and and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' simple message when he started was, turn from your sin, turn to me. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? That means the king of the kingdom is here. And where the king is, the king's rule is manifest and the kingdom is at hand. And so you see Jesus' power over nature, power over demons, 
power over sickness, power over death. The kingdom is breaking in on human beings. And he's saying, turn for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. Turn and come to the kingdom. Now, here's a little map. Pete did a nice little map. I figured I'd give you a nice little map too. And so what you have here is Jesus. Nazareth is right here. Okay. And he's making his way up to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Now, over here on the left, you could see this is the division of the 12 tribes of Israel when they entered the promised land in the conquest. You remember that in the history books. And so here, look, this is the Sea of Galilee. And here is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And look at Jesus' pathway right through Zebulun and Naphtali to Capernaum. And so the prophecy is fulfilled that says the people there in those regions dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Now I want to point something spiritual out to you from John. John, the gospel writer, loves to use light and dark imagery. It is loaded with this light and darkness imagery. Sometimes he means spiritual darkness and often he means spiritual light out of darkness. So for example, when, and sometimes he uses a, a play on the word. So exa- for example, in the Last Supper, when Judas betrays Jesus, Jesus says to him, go and do what you have to do. And so Judas leaves the Last Supper and John makes this little note, and it was night. What does that mean? Well, it means both that it was nighttime and the hour of darkness is at hand. It's very purposeful. John does this all through the gospel, and it would take us forever to unpack all of them. And so let's just look at one in the very first chapter. Here's what he says. In him, Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. You remember, Jesus is the author of life, according to uh, the earlier three verses. He's the creator. By him, all things were created. Colossians 1 says the same, that Jesus is the creator of all things visible and invisible. And then Hebrews 1 says that by him, the universe was made and upheld by the word of his power. And so life itself is in Jesus. In him, we live and move and have our being. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no existence, period. We are not random particles swirling around in a random galaxy in a sea of billions of other galaxies. Nothing is random. All is ordered by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. And that's a huge claim. This is what the Bible claims. All through it, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the author of all life, including galaxy life. Billions upon billions of galaxies, each themselves containing billions and billions of stars. Jesus said, mine. And they all came to existence by his word. And so here he is the author of life. In him was life and he was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What does darkness mean? Darkness means spiritual darkness. Okay. We don't like to think of ourselves as being in the dark or being spiritually dead or even as Jesus says, being evil. We don't like that. But Jesus himself, even to his own disciples, when, they, when he said, listen, if, if you're a good father and your son asks for a fish, would, would, would you give him a serpent? No. What, what good father, if a son asked for bread, would give him a stone? No. So then he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? Okay. Which is the, a great gift. So the idea is Jesus says about all human beings, even his own disciples, that we are evil. We are darkness. We live in it and it comes from within us. This is why we need the light of life. And so Jesus shines in the darkness and the darkness, though it tried to overcome him, was not able to because what happened on the third day? The light broke forth out of the darkness and resurrection occurred. Okay? There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He came as a witness, a witness to who? To his cousin Jesus, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. You remember when uh, the religious leaders came to John and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? No, I'm not. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie his sandals, basically. 
No, I'm not the one. Well, then who are you? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. I'm here to prepare the way of the Messiah that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. How tragic. The creator became his own creation as a baby, grew up, lived perfectly, and everyone missed that he was the creator. Why? Because he was so unassuming. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his parents Mary and Joseph? And don't we know his brothers and sisters? James and Judas and then the sisters who are unnamed. This is just Jesus. Yet he is the creator. The light of the world. Humbly come as a babe. And so here's what I want to show you here. The prophecy being fulfilled in Isaiah 9, 1-2 is that Jesus was the light. It was his nature. It was his being. It was his essence. In fact, in John, uh, the, the, the epistle of John, it says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Think about that. Wait, God is light. In fact, uh, the scripture says he dwells in unapproachable light. There is light so bright that you can't get near it because it would disintegrate you. Unapproachable light. Like unbridled energy. You know, I always used to think as a kid, I wish I could get a shotgun and shoot the sun. You know, do you ever, you're a kid and you imagine you could do things like that or get a slingshot. I remember just, if I just had a good enough slingshot. Like, and, and, you, and, you, and I would imagine the bullet or the rock. You know, I was not a science kid, right? So... I could do that, you know? I, but I would imagine it getting closer to the sun and just, and just disintegrating, okay? Listen, friends, who gives the sun its energy? Okay? And, and how many billions of suns are out there? You know, the, the sun's just a yellow dwarf star. It's a little one. Yet it, it, it sustains all life on our planet. The sun goes out, we're done. <laughs> and yet, it is a small light in comparison to the big light Jesus Christ. So this is the point here. The the creator, light himself, has come into the world, into the darkness. And the darkness tried to swallow up the light, but could not. And so the prophecy is fulfilled that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. Now, Let's skip a couple verses down to chapter 6. And this is very specific about Jesus. Very specific. For to us, a child is born. Now you remember Pete opened this up last week for us. The immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is Isaiah's son. You remember that from last week? But we know from the description of this son in 6 through 7, it cannot be Isaiah's son. It has to have a further fulfillment. And I would even argue by the time we get to the end, it's an even further fulfillment. It's a mountain range beyond the perceptible mountain range. And so for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, in 2020, up until the midterm elections, uh, well, let's just say maybe 2018, by the time the presidents started campaigning for 2020, it's been political bananas, right? And some of you would go even before that. You'd say by 2016, it was, it's been political bananas for maybe a decade, okay? Friends, do you realize that this prophecy is saying there's coming a day when Jesus is coming to take over the government of the United States? President Jesus. But not just the United States, not just the United States, the entire world. Look what it says. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, that might sound great, but to those who are in rebellion against him, it's not going to be awesome. Have you ever read Psalm 2? Did you know that Psalm 2 is often quoted in the New Testament, specifically in Acts chapter 4, verses, let's see, I got it here somewhere. Acts chapter 4 uh, 
I don't have it. It's in Acts 4 when the apostles are praying and they quote Psalm 2 and say it's Jesus that the peoples are raging against. So let's look at Psalm 2 for just a minute and let's think about Jesus coming to take over the government. Okay? Psalm 2, 1 to 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now remember what I said a minute ago. We would not know necessarily that this was predictive prophecy unless the New Testament revealed it to us. If you were to go to Acts 4 and read it, you would see this is quoted and it's quoted in light of Jesus. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that would be the Father, and His anointed, that would be Jesus. Anointed means Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one. Saying, here's what they say, let us burst their bonds apart. Bonds are like handcuffs, they're shackles, bonds. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, if you follow any kind of cultural movements, you know that biblical morality, what God says is right and what God says is wrong, those bonds are seeking to be burst at every level, and it's, it's transgressing more and more every day. Okay. Now, when Jesus comes, listen, there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is. And when he says this is right and this is wrong, and he says enough of the wrong, what does that mean for all the people that love the wrong? What does that mean for the people who love the right but continue to do the wrong? And who say, oh Lord, how long must I live in this body of death? To quote the Apostle Paul. My, my point here is, friends, it's not going to be pretty when Jesus comes back. We, we imagine it's going to be glorious and happy and joyful. Some will meet him with joy. Many will meet him with rage. And they will seek to fight against him and they will fight against his rule. What we want as Christians is to bow the knee of submission, love, and allegiance now so that on that day, we don't meet him as his opponent. You don't want that. You do not want to meet the Lord of glory on bad terms. Okay? And my, my encouragement would be, heed the scripture and passages like Philippians 2 where it says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. But then it says this, those on the earth and where? Under the earth. Even those in the realm of the dead will confess that Jesus is Lord. Meaning ruler, authority, most high, no one can step to him. If I could just put it like that. And it's like my dad will beat up your dad. No one's stepping to Jesus. No one. Okay? And, and so, look, we don't like these verses, but they're in the Bible and they're pointing to Jesus. And so it would be beneficial for us to know that this is who Jesus is. We often think of him carrying a white fluffy lamb with long flowing hair and like perfectly manicured nails. He's probably got a petty too, right? And the idea is that's not Jesus. It's not him, man. He was rugged, raw. Basically, he lived outside. He you know, but when he comes back, this is going to be it. And so he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The people who want to break away from him, it's so funny that this is the reality of it. In him, they literally live and move and have their being. And yet they want to escape him. Yet to escape him would be to lose your existence altogether. Does that make sense? If you could escape the one upholding your very being, you would cease to exist. Yet this is what all of us in rebellion and unborn again, unregenerate state want. We want nothing to do with God. And yet if God had nothing to do with you, you would melt into a puddle of nothing. Because he upholds your very being. That's what the scripture claims. Now, you say, well, I don't believe that. Okay. Are you self-sufficient? Do you keep your heart beating? Are you thinking, meditating, consciously, breathing in, breathing out? You're just keeping your lungs going, keeping that heart beating, keeping your brain firing and all those synapses in working order to even understand what I'm saying right now. You're doing all that? You're not. See, it's unconscious and it's put into the human machine by God himself. Okay? And, and I'm not trying to be arrogant or if I could just use you know, some childlike language, 
turd-like right now. I'm not trying to be a turd, okay? What I'm trying to get you to do, I have too many conversations with my kids, all right? What I'm trying to get you to do is see the truth of the scriptures and the claims that it makes. Wrestle with the claims, reject them, or receive them, okay? The Bible claims a lot of big truths. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is Jerusalem. I have set the king in the middle of the Middle East, and he will rule and reign from there. No one can dethrone him. And then as the psalm continues, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance or your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus is going to rule and he's going to rule by force. That's what it says. It says he will break them, the nations, with a rod of iron. You rebel against him, you get broke. Okay? Now listen, I, I, I come from the, the hip-hop culture. That was my past. And it was like bold declarations. This is the way that we roll in this culture. That's what's happening here. Just bold declarations. You want to step to the king, he's going to break you with a rod of iron. And so the idea is you're better to submit. You're better to submit. Okay? Or break you in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, in light of this, O kings, be wise. You rulers, just be wise. Use wisdom. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That means pledge allegiance to Him. Bow your knee. Acknowledge His authority. Acknowledge your underness. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now listen, friends. I love the images of Christmas. I love Jesus in a manger, sweet and innocent, with that starlight just shining right down on him. But you know that's not who he is right now. This is who he is right now. And when he comes back a second time, this is the reality. He's coming with the rod of iron. He's coming, as Revelation says, with a double-edged sword out of his mouth, which to slay with. The blood will flow. And yes, we celebrate Jesus, innocent, sweet, but we like that harmless Jesus. Right? He makes it into the display downtown. <laughs> he makes it into the home display. Like no one has Jesus with his robe dipped in blood from Revelation on that display. Like bloody Jesus. No one's got him up, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a bit shocked here because I think it's valuable, okay? The warning is set forth, and here it is. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. These are the options. You can come to Jesus and find safety, security, welcome, forgiveness, blessedness, eternal life, light, goodness, and I could keep describing but when you reject him, you are rejecting the source of all pleasure. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. All goodness, by God's definition of what is good, exists in God. All evil and all perversions of the good exists in Satan and in the world. And he will do away with all the evil. That's coming. Now the problem is, if we don't have the evil taken care of in us, then we get swept away in the flood too. But the good news, friends, is this, that Jesus came as a baby precisely to take care of the evil inside of us. He himself was not evil. He said with his own words, we were. He went to the cross for this very purpose, to receive the penalty and payment for our evil. He died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for your sins and for mine. And on that cross, God treated him like he lived your life. God treated him like he lived my life. And when I come to him for forgiveness, for safety, for security and forgiveness, look, I'm blessed. 
Blessed are all those who hide in Jesus. What does that mean precisely? That means on the cross, you need to make sure that he was bleeding for your sins. Not just sins in general, not the sins of all people, your sins. Has he died for your sins, friends? Because friends, here's the options. Someone pays for sin. You, forever, or Jesus pays. Those are the options. And the good news that we proclaim and get to proclaim again and again is that if you come to Jesus, turning from your sin, asking for his mercy and grace, asking him to forgive you, he will. And he will receive you to himself and you will be saved forever. He is a strong tower. And when you run into it, you are safe. That's the good news, friends. And so all of this Psalm 2, friends, you're going to be on the winning side if you're in Christ. You get to be behind the one with the rod of iron in his squad. Not in opposition as he's coming after you. Don't you want to be on the right side? You know, we often hear, don't you want to be on the right side of history? Like bend to the culture. Friends, history is only in that view so uh, wide as the next turn and move. But friends, this is ultimate history. This is the end game. You want to be on the right side of history? Go with Jesus. No matter what the culture says, or no matter how much stigmatism is surrounding being a Christian, no matter how much you're called a bigot or a hater or a disgusting person, this is the end of history right here. So you want to look past the criticisms, past the derogatory language and say, no, I will be on the winning side eventually, even if now you have to view me as on the wrong side. And you just got to come to terms with that. Okay. Now I'm not saying we'd be arrogant. I'm not saying we flaunt. I'm not saying we'd be prideful. I'm not saying we'd be self-righteous. Do none of those things. But friends, the Bible has many warnings in it. And this is, I'm convinced why a lot of people don't read it. Like that's bad news. I don't like that. It's only bad news if you don't see that God himself supplied a way out, which is called the gospel. And it's good news. Yes, wrath is coming, but wrath already landed on Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, the wrath misses you and lands on him. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I only got 17 minutes left, so let's move. The government will be upon his shoulders. Now, one one more thing I just want to point out about this. Jesus isn't going to rule uh, like a dictator. He's actually going to rule through his people. Did you know that? Because in the parables, in the gospels, one of the rewards is you roll over 10 cities. You roll over this many cities. There will be cities in the new heavens and new earth, and there will be government. Yes, run by Jesus at the head, but then delegated to governors and mayors and, you know, councils and whatever. And and we will be those people. At least that's what the parable says. His name will be called this. Now, look, this is his character. Okay, this points to the character of this child, wonderful counselor. Now, the Proverbs speaks a lot about getting good counsel. It says, in a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. But we want to make sure the counselors are good counselors and not bad counselors. It presupposes good counselors. This one is the wonderful counselor. Why? Because, friends, all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding, Omni-science itself, meaning omni-all-science-knowing, all-knowingness is in Christ. He is the very storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. There's one place in the gospel I would point to. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus talking about uh, to, the, to, the, to the leaders who want a sign, show us a sign. No sign will be given you except Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he says this, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Notice that condemnation language. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, you remember the story back in Kings. Um, in fact, it's in 1 Kings 10, 1 to 10. Uh, the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon with all these questions and all this treasure. 
And she loads him up with riddles and questions. And he answers all of her questions. And she is blown away by his wealth and his wisdom and his servants and his kingdom. Now, we don't know quite where the, the, the Sheba land is. It could be Ethiopia. Some scholars think that. Some think it's in Yemen, which is like, you know, northern Africa, right to the right in the Middle East. And we don't know exactly where Sheba was. But the point here is, this queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. But look what Jesus says about Solomon. You remember the prophecy of God to Solomon. Ask what you will. Wait, you're saying I get three wishes? <laughs> kind of. And so Solomon says, look, I'm just a child. You've given my father favor. I don't know how to rule this great people of yours. Give me a wise and understanding heart. Okay, it's a paraphrase. And God says, because you have not asked for wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you much more, but I'm going to make you the wisest person that ever lived. And outside of Jesus, Solomon was the wisest person that ever lived. But here's Jesus saying something greater than Solomon is here. And what's the text? He is the wonderful counselor. All wisdom and knowledge and understanding rests in Christ. Okay, this is who this child is. This is what the doctrine of omniscience is. He knows all things. He not only knows the beginning, but he declares the end from the beginning. He not only knows the end, he not only knows the beginning of a thing, but he knows everything in between and all the connectedness. Okay? He's also called mighty God. Now, this is a declaration of Jesus' deity. This son is called God, mighty God, a prophecy about Jesus that he will be God himself, everlasting father. Now, this doesn't mean like uh, that Jesus is the father. doesn't mean that. What it means is he's father-like. He's father-like in that he fathers his people. He cares for them. He provides for them. He leads them. He is over them that way that he is the father. And there is this mysteriousness in the New Testament about the father and Jesus being one. Okay? Jesus isn't the father and the father isn't Jesus, but he does say we are one. Okay? And so everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, the reason I love this prince of peace is because we know nothing of peace in this world, right? We don't even know peace within ourselves. Like, think about the, in the closest proximity to you. You're like, I just want five feet of peace. What's, but the problem is you don't even have peace inside of you. You can't get it anywhere you go. You go in your car, it's a mess. You go to bed, it's a mess. You wake up in the middle of the night, turmoil, trouble, right? Am I the only one? And so... Here's, here's what true peace is, friends. It's called shalom. It's peace with yourself, peace with God, peace with other people, and peace on a global scale. And I would add to that a fifth, peace in the animal kingdom too. That's also prophesied. Friends, we, that's what we're headed for. The rule of Jesus brings peace. Now, sadly, before the peace, he has to squash the opposition, which is what we were just talking about earlier, and he will. But when he finally comes to rule and reign, we will be at peace with God fully, peace with ourselves fully, peace with our neighbors fully, peace with the animal kingdom fully. I mean, can you imagine this? No nations, in fact, the prophecy in Isaiah is that the nations will beat their weapons of war into farming utensils. What does that point to? All that machinery, all that milling, all that copper and brass and steel is now going to be used to make the earth produce like it never has before. That's amazing. The Prince of Peace. He comes to bring peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, one, one, one commentator I read while preparing this said this. And it blew me away. I, I, I literally sat back in my chair and I was like, this is what this commentator said. In the rule of Jesus, the increase, notice that word increase, of his government and peace, there will be no end. This commentator said literally every minute will be better than the last one. And I, I sat back and I said, is that possible? Forever? This is the best minute ever. 
But then the next minute comes, this is the best minute ever. And then the next minute comes, this is the, I mean, really? Is that possible? I mean, it does say increase of his government and peace. Now, now here, here's a little bit of theology for you. If God is all-powerful, omni, again, potent, omnipotent, then literally there is no end to his power. He has all power within himself. And so if he is infinite, there is no end to God, an endless well going down, or if you go to the highest heights, he's already there. If there is no end to God, then that has to be possible. That every minute could be better than the one experienced right now. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Look forward to that. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. Establish it, that means no coups. That means no elections. An established throne that, that outlasts. I mean, no voting. No, Jesus is not getting voted out of office. Isn't that good news? In fact, no one would want to vote him out of office because everyone's on his side. Now, I, I do want to pause with my last eight minutes and 51 seconds, and I want to open up this throne of David thing, okay? Because for, for a lot of you, you're like, yeah, yeah, David, I know that. Some, some, of them, some of you don't, okay? So let's look at this real quick. It's in 2 Samuel 7. God, through, through Nathan the prophet, actually, if you look down here, Nathan the prophet spoke to David. So Nathan, the prophet is saying these things to David. God through Nathan is speaking. And here's what he says to him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that was a way of saying you, you die and you're buried with your, your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring after you who, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Okay. That right there, that 13 a is Solomon. You can read the story of Solomon, the one who I just mentioned earlier, who asked for wisdom and God gave it. Okay? He is the one who builds the temple of God. But then look at the second part of verse 13. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know Solomon died and his son took over and split the kingdom. So this can't be about Solomon's son. Okay? It has to be pointing beyond a future son of David. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son, uh, to me a son. When he commits iniquity, we know that's not Jesus because he never sinned. So he must be talking about Solomon. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now look at 16, ready? And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with what? So how is Jesus going to rule? with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Listen, friends, we have never had a just ruler. Do you realize that? Not one, ever in human history. We have never had a, a, a king, a mayor, a governor, any ruler who's ever governed with righteousness. Do you realize that? Because if you're not righteous on the inside, you can't produce it. Apple trees cannot produce anything but apples. And so if there's sin on the inside, only unrighteousness can be produced. Now, Christians who have the Holy Spirit and who are born again and have a new spirit, according to Ezekiel 36, they're on their way to being perfect and righteous. But even we who have the Holy Spirit and who have this new spiritual life in us, we still struggle with sin, don't we? Any Christian in this room will say, I have been tempted all day right? Because being unrighteously angry and frustrated is a sin. And you say, well, all my anger is righteous. I doubt it. I doubt it. Okay? Most, all of your anger is unrighteous and selfish. 
you're in my way. I was trying to do this. You're messing up my plans. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Yeah, that's selfish. Speaking to myself, by the way. (laughs) And so what my point is, you need righteousness on the inside. You need full justice on the inside in order for it to come out in your ruling. Only Jesus fits that bill, friends. But that's what we have to look forward to. That's what we have to look forward to. And then the text closes with this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the Lord of hosts, that's a unique name for God. What does that mean? The Lord of heaven's armies. Did you know that the Bible speaks about immaterial beings that are real, personal, but invisible? And Hebrews chapter 1 talks about them, that Jesus is higher than the angels. Later in the book of Hebrews, it says that, did you not know that all the angels, good ones, holy ones, elect ones, are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That means you have been helped by angels if you're a Christian. That's what the text says. They're ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Who's that? Christians. Do you know that there's a text in the gospel that talks about being careful not to tempt or destroy little children. And you know what the reason Jesus gives? He says, because their angels, T-H-E-I-R, their angels always behold the face of my Father in heaven. Wait, so you're saying there's guardian angels? No, Jesus said it. Not me. Therefore, be very careful around kids, man. Like, angels are watching and they're telling on you (laughs) parents that's scary that's what the text says jesus says it now the point here is the lord of hosts will do this listen there are countless angels that we do not know but they know us and they've been watching us since you've been born they know all about you you know nothing of them you know how many angels names we know of in the bible three Michael, Gabriel, and Satan. Who's also called Lucifer and the devil and that ancient serpent. And he's got a lot of names. He was an angel. All right. Now listen, here's the point. God is in charge of a massive army of invisible, powerful beings that, listen, they're on your side. Isn't that good news? Like they're on the side of Christians. We often get enamored with the demonic. And I understand why, because horror movies sell, right? You go to blockbusters, there's all this weird, dark imagination. We love Halloween. But, but friends, there's a bigger army of good angels who are far more powerful and they're on your team. They're on your side. Now, we don't pray to them. We don't praise them. We don't ask them for help. We ask God, but God dispatches his angels to help. It's the text, okay? Now, let's finish with this, all right? I got one minute, 45 seconds. What I want to ask is this. Why in the world would God do it like this? Like, have you ever like, thought about the plan of God and then thought about your own life and thought about the state of the world or read a couple headlines and been like, God, why would you do it like this? Am I the only one that thinks like that? Like, why would you create the opportunity for the whole human race to fall into sin and darkness? Because you know he did that, right? Put Adam and Eve in the garden and put the tree in there and said, don't eat it. Didn't stop them from eating it. Sovereignly allowed the first sin to come into being and then cursed the man, the woman, and the ground, and the universe for committing that first sin. But then, right as the curse is being announced, a promise is issued. You remember that? Genesis 3.15, when, when the snake is being cursed, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the snake and the woman, because it was the snake who tempted the woman. The woman ate from the tree and gave some to her husband who was with her. I will put enmity, strife, contention between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head. 
and you shall bruise his heel. Now we know that that snake is that ancient serpent, serpent, the devil. And there's coming a point prophesied here at the curse that the snake will be crushed in the head as he's striking the heel of this offspring or the seed of the woman as one translation has it. This is Jesus. And so Jesus is in the picture in the very beginning at the first sin and the curse of sin. He predicts through prophets the birth of this offspring or seed. He puts all kinds of pictures and illusions and types and shadows all through human history pointing to this offspring or this seed. You know that, right? Like even Adam and Eve, they, they cover themselves with fig leaves because they're afraid and they're shameful. And, and so what does God do? He kills an animal and wraps them in the animal's skin, leather, like leather pants, like leather jackets. That happened back in Eden. Like God's the first one who, who did that. Okay? But here's the point. The, the, the promise to them was you eat, you die. But they don't die, do they? A substitute dies for them. That's significant. The blood is shed and they're wearing the sacrifice. And then the sacrifices continue. Even Cain and Abel are doing sacrifices before the sacrificial system's even instituted. What is this pointing to? An ultimate sacrifice. And when you begin to read the Old Testament in this light, you see this seed of the woman is all over the place. He is being pointed to from the very beginning until we get to Revelation, and there's this crazy passage that says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Wait, before the world was created, before the first sin, Jesus was already dying for sin? That's what it says. Friends, here's what we need to realize as Christians. This whole human history is all about Jesus and his glory and you being on his side and in him. And yes, we are in the middle of the curse. We're still living in it. But friends, the promise is one day he's coming to remove the curse. He's coming to do away with Satan, sin, death, and evil. He's coming to extract the evil out of our very being. And we will not even be able to be tempted anymore. His promises are this. He will return. And he will have heaven's armies behind him. And if we die before then, we're going to be behind him. On the winning side of history. And so Spurgeon, I just want to end with a Spurgeon quote. A gnat might seek to drink in the ocean. You gotta love Spurgeon, right? <laughs> a gnat might seek to drink in the ocean. So a finite creature might seek to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could understand, listen, a God whom we could understand, remember the question, why would you do it like this? What are you doing? I don't understand God. A God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp him, he would not be infinite. If we could understand him, then he would not be divine. And so this is, this is what Spurgeon is trying to say here. Rest in your creatureliness and rest in his infinity, his eternality, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his love, his being the light, his entering into darkness itself. Remember, the light came into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, the light of all lights, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. He came into the darkness itself. And it tried to put out the light. And it seemed like the light was put out, didn't it? We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one who Moses wrote about. But the third day proved he was the light. Resurrection proved he was the light of the world. And friends, he is promising us that he will come back again. And so this is a part of Advent. Yes, we celebrate the coming of Christmas again. And by the way, it's in two weeks. Not sure if you got your shopping done, but it's in two weeks. 
We celebrate the first coming of Jesus. But in Advent, we also anticipate this second coming. He's coming again. And so even as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus when he makes all things right. When he rescues us finally from sin and death, from ourselves. Have you ever prayed the prayer, Jesus, save me from myself? (laughs) It's a great prayer. And you know what he says? I will. I'm doing it even now. Day by day, imperceptibly, moment by moment, week by week, year by year, I'm saving you. And you will finally be saved. Friends, this is what Christmas is all about. The light came into the darkness. The darkness tried to swallow up the light. And it burst forth from out the tomb of darkness. And he is alive forevermore. And the kingdom of light wins. And it will come and bring that light down into this darkness. Did you know that? I know I'm over time. I'm sorry. Did you know that in the new heavens and the new earth, the imagery of revelation is that we don't even need the sun anymore because the lamb, Jesus himself, will light up the whole new universe. What's that even going to be like? I'll leave you with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace your great mercy. We thank you that you are sovereign, in control, powerful, present in our lives. Father, we thank you that you sent your only son, whom you love, into the world as a helpless baby. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not stay a baby. He lived perfectly in our place. He died on the cross for our sins, Father, you were pleased to put our sins on him as he bore our sins in his body on the tree. God, we thank you that you are promising us that as Jesus once came, he will come again. We look forward to that day. God, may we not lose heart. May we not lose sight that this current state of being is temporary. The current state of the world and all its chaos is temporary. Jesus, we look forward to your coming and we say together, come Lord Jesus, come. And it's in Jesus' name. Everyone said?